Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. With spring in full swing and COVID-related restrictions easing in some parts of the world, fieldwork season is well and truly upon us. This is often one of the most important, enjoyable, and hardest parts of a research project. And on the Heredity Podcast, we've heard about some truly incredible fieldwork experiences. So in this episode, I thought we could revisit a few of the ones that have caused me the most envy. And first up, we have one that stuck with me from the very beginning of the podcast, all the way back in 2018, when Dr. William Goodall Copestake from the British Antarctic Survey told us about his voyages in the South Atlantic. When I collected the second species, Sarpofusiformis, it was actually part of a larger survey, looking at biodiversity around uh, Gough Island and also uh, Tristan de Kuna, in fact. And um, everybody knew that I uh, quite liked looking at salps. And so uh, when I saw these animals come up, I made sure I put them to one side and uh, saved them for future analysis. And uh, little was I to know that a couple of years later, they'd be more or less one of the best comparative groups I could use to face off against uh, Salpotomsonae. I suppose to do with fieldwork, even though I'm a geneticist who spends most of his time in the lab or on the computer, I've been increasingly spending a lot of time working at sea. And this paper felt quite special to me because I actually submitted it whilst I was crossing the Drake Passage on my way to the Antarctic Peninsula. No way. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's quite funny because when I was submitting it, it was, a, it was a little bit rough. And obviously it was the usual comedy of the mouse jumping off the table and everything else in the computer lab. You can find out more about this project by listening to the August 2018 episode of the podcast, or by reading the paper, NRDNA, MTDNA Copy Number Ratios, as a Comparative Metric for Evolutionary and Conservation Genetics. And from Antarctica to Amazonia, our next fieldwork story comes from Diana Rojas from Fometra University in Colombia, and Adam Stowe from Macquarie University in Australia, who journeyed deep into the rainforest to study the colour-diverse, splash-backed poison frogs. We had fieldwork that was amazing. Amazon is really amazing. So one of the interesting things that we used to decide the points that we were to visit was where the blue color was found. Uh, we traveled to the Paris state in Brazil. That is the uh, principal distribution of Galactonotus, maybe. And... Well, we collect uh, a standard number of frogs at each locality of each color. And we try to cover almost the geographic distribution known for Galactonotus. Um, it was something like two years during the rainy season to collect our samples. But we also use another sample that were previously collected that were available in, in collections. We try also to measure all the, the live individuals that we collect to try to see the colors. So we measure that with a, a spectrophotometer. And we try to do during the field, but sometimes we have to measure in the laboratory at Manaus. I have used a spectrophotometer myself. They are not the easiest things to get into the field. <laughs> no, the, the, the fieldwork was amazing. It's a very good experience. I love fieldwork, but you, you have to... It, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But you enjoy that. So, I mean, you kind of went out there. It sounds as though you spent an incredible amount of time collecting these samples. And I guess, what was it that you sort of did with all this data once you collected it? 
I think that Adam can explain very what we exactly do with the genetic path. Okay, <laughs> right. So um, as as Gianna mentioned, she amassed a, a wonderful uh, data set of color and also um, very small tissue samples that she collected from the field. And I might might also add that I was very fortunate to enjoy the field work with Gianna and Albertina Lima, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. So we're talking about a very remote part of the world, and we traveled by boats to get up into these very remote areas and then would walk on a you know daily basis quite often you know 15 kilometers or more in in dense rainforest looking for these uh, these frogs and and both uh, Albertina and Gianna have an amazing search pattern for these frogs and it took me a while to catch up but they <laughs> eventually got me uh, zoned in on on how to to find them but it, it was a, an amazing experience And to hear the answer to the question I asked, you'll either need to listen to the episode, Fantastic Frogs and Where to Find Them, or read the paper, The Evolution of Polymorphism in the Warning Coloration of the Amazonian Poison Frog, Adelphabates Galactinotis. Sticking with South America, next we're going to hear from Jose Ariondo, from King Juan Carlos University in Spain, who told us about his work on orchids in Ecuador's incredible cloud rainforests. Yeah, we decided to work on this fragment of forest, uh, which is about one hectare in size. It is really a, a quite amazing place, uh, at least for me, coming from Spain. Um, having the opportunity to work in a cloud forest was quite amazing. This lot has a very exuberant vegetation, and it has a high density of trees and vines, and the topography is also very hard. There is a steep inclination. And because of all the, the primary production that there is in, in this cloud forest, you are actually walking on a, a thick layer of organic matter, which in many cases can be as thick as two meters deep. So it feels like you are walking on a big mattress. And it is a bit risky because sometimes the organic matter may give up under the weight of your feet and you may, you may fall in. Uh, so it was quite a, a difficult place to work on. Uh, but the idea was to georeference every single tree or vine that was thicker than one centimeter in diameter. And then we checked every single tree to look for this particular species. And when we found individuals of this species, we also took the geographic coordinates of these individuals of, of this orchid and also took uh, some leaf samples for the genetic analysis. So, yes, it was a very hard work in, in, in the field. This was a fascinating, eye-opening chat that even touched upon illegal plant trafficking. Hear more in the episode Orchids in the Cloud. Or read the paper, Complex Fine-Scale Spatial Genetic Structure in Epidendrum rupilosti, an epiphytic orchid, whose name I have probably mispronounced. Our final tale from South America comes from Dr. Valdir Babehefilia, at the time from Swansea University in Wales, who ventured into the Brazilian mangroves in search of an amazing, yet tiny, asexual fish. I just wonder what it was like going into the Brazilian mangroves and actually sampling these fish. Oh, that's... That's that's tough. Yeah, walking among groups, especially for this fish, is really really challenging task. I mean, to be honest, ten years ago in 2011, there was only two populations known from these species in Brazil, and people thought, oh, maybe these species were really rare. But actually, they are so hard to find. And most of the people who work with fish, the freshwater people, don't go to this kind of environments, and the marine people don't go to this kind of environments. So the mangrove is a kind of <laughs> unknown area. 
and the fish is not very big. It hides very well. It's very cryptic. As I said, kind of inhabits this very cryptic environments within mangrove forests. We are talking about very temporary pools, crab burrows. <laughs> so basically, you're looking for a fish that's not longer than three centimeters in the mangrove environment that's highly complex, that's affected by tidal variation twice a day. So it, it is a challenge. You end up with many, many mosquito bites and tons of mud <laughs> all over your face. And everything. So it, 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 is, it is challenging work with mangrove fishes. That's one of the reasons that people thought they were so rare. Maybe they were looking at the wrong places, or maybe they, uh, I mean, they are, they, are, they, are, they are hard to catch. It sounds brutal, but incredible. To hear more, listen to the episode More Than Meets the Eye. Or read the paper More Than Meets the Eye. Syntopic and morphologically similar mangrove killifish species show different mating systems and patterns of genetic structure along the Brazilian coast. Of course, when we talk about fieldwork at Heredity, it's important to remember that Heredity has a dedicated fieldwork grant. And one recipient of this grant was Ashley Settle-Price, from the University of Oxford. Ashley set out to study the evolutionary dynamics of silver eye birds that were introduced to, well, paradise. Yeah, so I kind of, I guess I've kind of lucked out a little bit when it comes to fieldwork. Yeah, there's definitely many worse places to spend two months of your life than French Polynesia. Uh, I bet. Yes, I I was really lucky that with the support of a heredity fieldwork grant from the Genetics Society, I could visit five of the 11 islands uh, that have silver eye populations. And the islands I visited were Tahiti, which is where the species was originally introduced, uh, and also the islands of Marea, Huahini, Rarity and Malpiti. Uh, And kind of to give a little bit of uh, context to how fieldwork works, really, it was um, I'd land on an island, I'd spend a few days trying to identify good catching sites trying to find out where the silver eyes were occurring. And then once I knew that, I'd be putting up mist nets and spending several days in the field, catching the birds, taking them out of the nets, uh, recording morphological measurements. So this could be things like weight and bill length and depth and how long their wings are and how long their tails are. Uh, and then we also took, for the genetic analysis, took a very small blood sample from each of the birds that we caught. And this is kind of a bit analogous to you know, when you go to the doctor and they take a blood test from your, from your wrist. It's a kind of very similar procedure no it doesn't hurt the birds and they're fine and fly off and then we have our nice genetic sample that we can answer interesting questions from uh, and then on each island once i'd caught enough birds i'd then hop on one of the small french polynesian planes and set off to another island and repeat all of this again yeah. but um it's kind of interesting that uh so eastern guild in his writings about french polynesia kind of describes it as being an exotic paradise and he kind of writes and says that it brings forth a vision of a rich green foliage, brilliant in flowers and exotic birds, or it should bring forth those visions. But he also goes on to say that it's, though that's true in respect to the foliage and the flowers of French Polynesia, for some reason there is practically no bird life. And that was kind of his justification for introducing non-native species to Tahiti. And having visited French Polynesia, I could say, of course, there is an abundance of bird life in French Polynesia. Tahiti and the surrounding islands have several endemic species that are really important. But when I was doing my fieldwork, there was you know, some times where I found myself maybe agreeing with Guild a little bit, <laughs> especially when I was on the island of um, Huahini, which compared to all of the other islands I visited, it was practically devoid of birdsong. And I don't know if uh, that was the case, or it was just that it took me several long days to figure out just where I can find the silver eyes. And this was made a little bit more difficult that anybody I spoke to who was there, I'd show them pictures of silver eyes and they'd be like, oh no, we've never seen these at all. So trying to get local knowledge about a bird that nobody knows exists was a yeah, big part of spending two months hopping around paradise. 
This episode was brilliant and includes one of the most remarkable origin stories we've ever heard on the podcast. Discover what it is by listening to the episode, Drift and Selection in Paradise, or by reading the paper, Rapid Morphological Divergence Following a Human-Mediated Introduction, The Role of Drift and Directional Selection. You can also find out how to apply for a Heredity Fieldwork grant yourself at genetics.org.uk forward slash grants forward slash Heredity Fieldwork grant. And just time for one last clip, and it may be my favourite clip in the entire history of the podcast. Back in 2018, Shannon Kielsen from James Cook University in Australia told us about the population genetics of koalas, and how she found some of these koalas was truly delightful. Within the Sydney Basin region, in the Blue Mountains, it's a protected area, lots of trees, lots of national parks, and koalas that are very difficult to find. Interestingly, part of the way we did this was one of my co-authors, Kelly Lee, has a couple of dogs that can sniff out koalas. They lead her through the bush and they find fresh koala droppings and she hopefully looks up into the trees and finds these sleeping koalas. Hear the whole story in the episode Koala Population Genetics, October 2018. Or read the study. Genomic comparisons reveal biogeographic and anthropogenic impacts in the koala, a dietary specialist species distributed across heterogeneous environments. So, there we have it. Antarctic voyages, rainforest expeditions, mosquito-infested mangroves, island hopping in paradise, and bush treks with four-legged collaborators. The authors behind heredity papers really do go above and beyond to collect incredible research data. But this is obviously just a fraction of the fieldwork that's really taking place by the authors who choose to publish in heredity. So if you've recently published in the journal, or plan to, and have some amazing fieldwork stories, please do get in touch and we'll see about getting you on the podcast to share them. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.